Sefer Shmuel, the book of Shmuel, in a historical perspective, we're all familiar with the fact that a Jew believes in the divine authorship of the Torah. Now, the divine authorship of the Torah would really be a meaningless concept if there wouldn't have been a system, a very, very special system that would guarantee the authentic transmission of that Torah from generation to generation. What would it help us if Moshe Rabbeinu received the Torah from Hashem but that then there wasn't any kind of a system set up that would authentically transmit it from one generation to the next. And therefore we are taught in the Mishnayis and Perkeyavis, and the Rambam in his introduction to the Mishnah also explains this, that there was a very, very detailed and very explicit transmission of Torah. HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave the Torah to Maisha. Moshe transmitted the Torah to Yeshua. Now that doesn't mean that Moshe only taught it to Yeshua and it was a private affair between Moshe and Yeshua. It meant that Yeshua became the person in his generation that was responsible for leading schools of Talmidei Chachamim in the hundreds of thousands that would only be involved in one thing, the preservation and transmission to the next generation of the Torah as it was taught to him by Maisha. So it went from HaKadosh Baruch Hu to Maisha, from Maisha to Yeshua, from Yeshua it went to the Skenim. If you recall the end of Sefer Yeshua, the end of Sefer Yeshua talks about a short period of time in which Kal Yisrael was led by the elders, by Skenim. If you remember, the elders didn't last very long, and the reason for it was because they didn't eulogize Joshua properly, and therefore their period in the history of Kal Yisrael was relatively short. But they also received the transmission. Now, listen carefully, this is a very interesting thing. From the elders, the Torah was transmitted, Mi Shofet Shofet. From one shofet to the next, and to the next, and to the next. From one judge to the next, and to the next. Okay? And they were the ones that were responsible to guarantee that the preservation and the transmission of Torah would take place from one generation to the next. Now, the last shofet transmitted the Torah to Eli, Hakohen. We're going to learn about Eli in this first parak of Shmuel and in the second parak of Shmuel as well. Now, all of the Shoftim, with including Eli, Hakohen, are all included in what it says in the Mishnah, Yeshua Masrua Liskenim. In other words, when it says Yeshua gave it over to the Skenim, it doesn't just mean that short period of time of the Skenim, but it means the transmission from one judge to the next, to the next, to the next, all of the judges that we learned about at Sefer Shoftim, and ultimately the last one was Eli, who we're going to learn about at the very beginning of Sefer Shmuel. After Eli, who did the, the Torah, who was the next one in the line of transmission? Shmuel Hanavi. And that's the junction in the Mishnah that says, Umiskenim Linaviyim. And from the elders it went to the Nevi'im. 
the first Navi being Shmuel. So just for the historical perspective, what we're learning over here is Eli represents the last link in the chain of the period of Scanan. Included in that period are all of the judges that we learned about. And then as we learn about Shmuel's development, we're starting the stage that is referred to historically as the era of the Nevi'im and the transmission of Torah to the Nevi'im. That's just a historical statement so we have, so to speak, our longitude and our latitude as we begin, say, for Shmuel. Let's begin. There was this individual who came from a place called Ramasayim Tzofim. We'll explain what that means in a moment. It's not, not simply a name. Mehar Ephraim. That was in the hills of what? Of the, of the, the territory that belonged to Ephraim. Ushmai Elkana. And his name was Elkana. Ben Yereicham, the son of Yereicham. Ben Elihu, the son of Elihu. Ben Taichu, Ben Tzuf, the son of Taichu, the son of Tzuf. Ephrasi. Now. The word Ephrasi, there's a dispute amongst the commentaries what the word Ephrasi means. Most Mepharshim say that the word Ephrasi means that the word Ephrasi means from the hills of Ephraim. Now, but there's a problem with that because it already says that Elkanah came from the hills of Ephraim just a few words before. It says his name was Elkanah from the, from the hills of Ephraim and his name was Elkanah. So why does it have to say at the end of the Pasuk Ephrasi that he came from the hills of Ephraim? It's, re- it's a redundancy. So the way that the Radak answers this is the Radak says that the beginning of the Pasuk says Ish Echad, that's referring to Elkanah, and Elkanah came from the hills of Ephraim. But going all the way back in his family to Yerecham, Eliyu, Ben Teichu, Ben Suf, they all lived in the hills of Ephraim. So the Ephrasi that comes at the end of the Pasuk is not talking about Elkanah, but it's talking about his great-great-grandfather. He also, this Tzuf, he also, in other words, for generations, they lived in the hills of Ephraim. However, even though they lived in the hills of Ephraim, listen carefully, they were not from the Shevet of Ephraim. They were, all of these people, including Elkanah, were from the Shevet of Levi. They were from the Shevet of Levi, but they lived in the hills of Ephraim. Now, why is this so terribly important for us to know? So the Radak says, those of you that remember, and you should remember, there's a great raging dispute when the episodes of what? Of Pesel Micha and Pelegish Begiva took place. Right? Did they take place? After the death of Ye- uh, what? After the death of Yeshua, before the period of the Shoftim, or did they take place all the way at the end of the era of the Shoftim? Okay, before Sefer Shmuel. Now, according to the opinions that it really took place before the entire Book of Judges, before all of the Shoftim, one is hard pressed to know why it's though recorded at the end of Sefer Shoftim. In other words, if you believe it happened at the end of the era of the judges, so then it's logical why it's there. But if you hold that it really happened all the way at the beginning, before the whole Sefer Shoftim, so why is it recorded all the way at the end? This is a problem. So the Radak says, but here we get a little bit of an answer to the question. 
we know that Pilegesh Begiva was also also happened from somebody from Shevet Levi, okay, who lived in the hills of Ephraim. And here, this is a story about a person from Shevet Levi that also lived in the hills of Ephraim. As if to say, look at the contrast. You can have two people coming from basically the same place and one can do wonderful good and one can do horrendously terrible things. As if, in other words, and for the reason of making that point that the quality of who you are isn't solely determined where you come from, because you can have two people that come from identical places, okay, and one could be a wonderful bracha, a wonderful blessing for Klal Yisrael, and one, and one could be a wonderful tragedy for Klal Yisrael. And that would be, the Radak says, one of the reasons why even though the episode did not take place at the end of Sefer Shoftim, but it was put at the end of Sefer Shoftim so that we might compare it to the beginning story of Sefer Shmuel and learn from there that you can't necessarily always say, well, it ain't my fault, I grew up here, and that's the end of the story. You could have two people coming out of the, so to speak, out of the same neighborhood, and one is wonderful and one is the opposite. All right? And basically saying that real growth begins within the person. Now this is not to say, this is not to say that there isn't an impact of environment, but all, all the more so that the proof is in the pudding. That if the environment was no good, so how come we had this person that bore a son, Shmuel, who saved Klal Yisrael and was equivalent to Moshe and Aaron in their generation? So obviously, you can't always point to the environment and say, it's not my fault, it's, all, it's the problem of the environment. And that's the, the way the Radak explains why, if the episode happened much, much before, why is the episode of Pelegish Begiva put at the end to make that contrast? If you go from Sefer Tov Shoftim into Sefer Shmuel, as we are, you make that contrast. Two Levies, both living in the hills of Ephraim, and look what came out of them. Look at the difference bet between the two. Okay, now let's go back and let's get a little bit more information on Elkanah. Okay, what does it say here? There was this individual whose name was Elkanah. He came from the hills of Ephraim. The particular place that he lived in was Ramasayim Tzofen. Now, most Mepharshim say Ramasayim Tzofen, both words are the definition of where he lived. Now, why was it called Ramasayim Tzofen? There were two very large mountains, tall mountains. Okay? And you were able to stand at the, at the top of one and see what was going on on the top of the other. In other words, you were able to see from one to the other. So Ramasayim comes from the root word Rama, which means tall. Tzofen means from the word to be able to see. So these two mountains were referred to as Ramasayim Tzofen the heights that saw each other. In other words, that's, that's the way most of the Mepharshim learn. However, other Mepharshim learn, and the Radak supports this, this, this interpretation, that the name of the place was Ramasayim. Selfim is a different thing. Selfim is that Ramasayim was a place where students of prophecy lived and learnt their prophecy, how to prophesize. Now, ultimately, prophecy is something that came from Hashem. But how to prepare for prophecy and how to understand the visions of prophecy, there were schools of prophecy. 
And these schools of prophecy were in Ramasayim. And Elkanah lived in Ramasayim. Why did he live in, in Ramasayim? Because he was also a student of prophecy. And here the Radak tells us a very interesting thing. The Radak tells us that Elkanah, okay, Elkanah came, okay, from dating him all the way back to his earliest, earliest origins. The Radak teaches us that he was from the great-great-grandchildren of Karach. In fact, Karach himself had a child whose name was Elkanah. And this Elkanah, which obviously is many generations later, had his name for Elkanah ben Kairach. Okay, for Elkanah, the son, the son of Kairach. And it was, it was well known, the Radak says, that the children and grandchildren of Karach that did tshuva, okay, and that in the last moment left their father's machlokas, okay, were saved and were zolcha, and they were meritorious to become Nevi'im, to become prophets. So there is a lineage, so to speak, of prophecy in this family, and Elkanah is living, so to speak, in the area of Ramasayim, which is the place where prophets trained in prophecy, and that's the setting of the story according to what? According to the Radak. Let's continue. And Elkanah had two wives. Shem Achas, the name of one, Chana, was Chana. Veshem Hashenis, and the name of the second, Penina. The name of the second was Penina. Vayehil Penina Yeladim, and Penina had children, Ulechana Ein Yeladim, and Chana did not have children. Now, the Malvim teaches us here a very, very important piece of information. The Malbim, you know, without the Malbim, who would have thought of this? But look at the Pasuk. Please look at the Pasuk. And he had two wives. Shem Achas, the name of one, is Chana. Shem Hashenis, Benina. So the Malbim says in Diktuk, in grammar, in grammar, it should be Shem Ha'achas, Shem Hashenis. In other words, there should be a hay in front of both. In other words, the hay hayadiyah, the hay of identification, you have it by penina, but you don't have it by chana. It should say, ha'achas, the one, and the second. But it doesn't say that. It says, shem achas, the name of one. So the Malbim learns from this that what the Navi is hinting to us is that really when Elkanah got married, Elkanah married chana and only intended to marry Chana. But after many years that Chana didn't bear children to Elkanah, Chana, as her great-great-grandmother did, Sari Imenu, suggested to Elkanah that Elkanah should marry a second person and bear children, and the merit that she would have, would have to actually bring in another person into the house of Elkanah would become a merit for her to eventually have children. So therefore the Malbim says, Shame Achas Chana. There was only one in Elkanah's life. Achas. It's not Ho'achas V'Hashenis. One and two. It was Achas. Chana. And then it became Shainis under the direction of Chana herself. 
Now this is going to be important a little bit later on in the story. And however, the Pasuk continues and the Pasuk says, but unfortunately, the first half of the plan happened. Penina had children. And with the, even in spite of the merit that Chana had, Chana didn't merit even in the suggestion of Penina to bring her, to have her own children. That it didn't happen the way that she had thought it might. Now, and this fellow, Elkanah, used to go up every yantif of the Shalash Regalim. In other words, in the fixed times of the year, he used to go up. Where did he go? To bow, which means to daven. And to bring offerings. Who is the master of all of the constellations? Bishilo, in Shilo. In other words, his custom was it came a yantif, he picked himself up, the place to daven was in Shilai, and there he davened and he brought his offerings. Vishamshne b'nei Eli, and the two children of Eli were there. That's the Kohen Gadol that I mentioned before. Chafni Upenchas. The name, their names were Chafni Upenchas. Kohanim Lashem. And they were meant to be what? Kohanim. Now, the Malbim teaches us some very, very interesting things over here. First of all, the Malbim teaches us like this. This is really a Gemara. The Gemara says that it says in the Pasuk that he used to go up from his city, okay, every year to Shilai. Okay? So the Gemara wonders about the fact, why didn't the Pasuk just say he went to Shilai every Yantif? He went up from his city to Shilai every Yantif. So the Gemara says that Elkanah was a very interesting person. Elkanah always left his city, but the way that he went to Shilai was different. In other words, the thing that was always the same was that he left his city. But how he arrived at Shilai was different every time. Because whenever he went, he took a different route to Shiloh in order to encourage the people along the way to go and celebrate the Yantif where they should celebrate it, in Shiloh. That's what he was dedicated to. And we're going to learn, Mitzvah in the second parak, that one of the reasons why Elkanah was meritorious of bringing a child like Shmuel into the world was because he didn't only look for his own Ruchnius who cares about everybody else? I'm headed for Shiloh. But he purposely went, every time he went, a different way. And you can imagine that they weren't all short routes. But that he went the way to be able to encourage the people along the way to go to Shiloh. Not only that, the Malbims, that's a Gemara. The Malbim says more. The Malbim says that from the particular city that Elkanah came from, okay, he was the only one that went to Shiloh. In other words, only he went. Now, this is a little bit peculiar. Why? Why is Elkanah the only individual that went from his city? In particular, we, one of the Mephashim that we learned before said that Ramasai himself was a place where prophets were growing up. So why was Elkanah the only one that went up to Shilai? So the Mephashim, sa- the Malbim says that this is answered by the end of the Pasuk. The end of the Pasuk says that who was officiating in Shilai in those, t- in those times? 
the two children of Eli, Chafni or Pinchas. Now we're going to learn in the second parak that Chafni or Pinchas were horrendous Kohanim. In other words, they, they took advantage. They took more than what they were supposed to in the offerings. They took from the offerings their portion before the time was appropriate. They, they delayed people's going home, which upset family life in major ways, to the point that Chazal say that because they upset family life and delayed women's going home, that it was considered as if they had committed adultery with these women, even though they hadn't actually. And therefore, people couldn't bring themselves to go to Shilai if when they got to Shilai, they had to look at Chafti and Pinchas as being their officiating rabbis in Shilai. So they didn't go. Okay. However, however, after everything is said and done, the Malbim says, Elkanah didn't make that cheshbon. It's true that there's something very deficient and inappropriate that's going on by, with Chafti and Pinchas. However, the reality of going to Shiloh, and after everything is said and done, the Shechina was in Shiloh, that was reason enough to go. And it was considered a great merit for Elkanah, and the Malbim says that Elkanah ultimately got rewarded for going to Shiloh under those circumstances, and he took the reward of all of those that should have gone and didn't go. Now, what do we learn from this? Hold on. We learned something very, very important from this. You think, ah, oh, big deal. Elkanah had a thick hide. So it didn't bother him so much. No, 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 no. You know what you learned from this? You learned a tremendous lesson. Sometimes, sometimes we go looking for good things. Really, we go looking for good things. And the trouble is that when we go to different addresses looking for good things, we don't always find the situation as pure and as good as it should be. Now, there are two ways that we react to this. One way that we react to it is, well, if such and such a thing goes wrong here, and if such and such a thing goes wrong here, I don't need the whole darn thing. And you don't, so to speak, throw away the shells and take the essence. In other words, throw away and try to, you know, so to speak, disregard the nonsense and take the good. But you say, if this can go on, you throw it all away. Like you throw, you know, you throw away the baby together with, with the bath water. Yeah. Another approach is, listen, what's not right, I don't condone, I don't accept, and I'm not going to agree with and I'll try to do my best to speak out and do what I can, but I'm not going to cut myself off from the benefit that might exist in that situation. That's the merit of Elkanah. The merit of Elkanah was that Elkanah, while recognizing that Chafni and Pinchas were despicable, and they were ulti- their kahuna was ultimately taken away from them, but he had the maturity of knowing that to the degree that it's possible to separate the experience of a Chafti or Pinchas from the experience of Shilai, a person needs to do that. Okay? And not to, so to speak, just throw out the whole thing. Now, this sometimes reach is very extreme levels. You know, the people that say, well, 
I went into this particular place, and if they can shove, and if they can push, and if they can say this, and if they can't consider me, and this and that, like, shove it. I'm not interested in the whole thing. Okay? And what we're learning over here is that you have to be able to separate people from, from, from the thing itself, from the Yiddishkeit itself. And that's the merit of Elkanah. In other words, Chafni and Pinchas were wrong, and there was no question that what they were doing was despicable, but, but Elkanah said the reality is that Shiloh is a meaningful place to go to and a meaningful place to be inspired from. And not only that, but he had enough guts to go every time a different way to encourage other people to go. In other words, he wasn't saying, well, it's my own personal choice to look away from Chafni and Pinchas. He held that that's what a person needs to do. That, of course, you want everything. But the people that wait to have everything and to have things in the perfect, in the perfect setting, it never happens. Okay, it never happens. And therefore, if it's possible to make the separation, okay, the separation needs to be made. Let's go further. And the day came to pass. And Alkana is what? Is bringing Karbanas, he's bringing offerings. And Elkana, after he brings the offerings, of which some of them were shlamims, of which we know that part is burnt on the Mizbeach, part of it is given to the Kohanim, and part of it, the people that bring the offerings, eat. So after he brought the offerings, so he divided up food portions for his family. So he gave Penina one portion, and all of his, all of Penina's sons and daughters, that added up to ten children, parenthetically, he gave portions. Olachana, and Chana, who was also there at the time uh, when they went to Shiloh, Yitain Mana Achas Apoyim. Elkana gave Chana one portion. It was only one portion. But the portion was Apoyim. Now, what does it mean that the portion was an apayim dika portion? We'll see in a moment. But why did he give her a portion that was an apayim dika one? Ki eschana ahev. Because Elkanah loved chana, v'hashem sagarachma. And in addition to the special love that Elkanah had for chana, was the special plane that chana wasn't ha- able to bring children into the world. Now, let's go back. And let's explain what it means. The simple definition of is that it was such a portion, it was such a beautiful portion, that it should have made any face that received it light up with pleasure. In other words, apayim coming from the word face, panim, okay, the face, that he made sure, okay, that at that distressful moment, when there was a, dr- a, a dramatic sense of the contrast between what he doled out, so to speak, to Penina and her children, that what he gave Chana was an unusually beautiful portion, as if to say to Chana that in spite of the fact that you don't have children, don't think for a minute, okay, that my feeling toward you, it's you, is is diminished or smaller than my feeling towards Penina, and therefore it should have been a portion that any person would have received understanding what was behind it, that message of, of Elkanah's caring for Chana. 
That's the simple definition. Now, other Mepharshim learn, right, other Mepharshim learn that apoyim means, okay, not that it would be received with a happy face, but that it would change her face. In other words, she was sad, she was bitter, okay, she was upset. The hope was that it would be apoyim, that it would be something that would change her face. In other words, the first interpretation is that it was a portion that anybody would receive with a happy face. The second interpretation is a little bit different, but apoyim means that it was intended to be able to change her mood, to change her face. However, okay, now, there's another pshat that the Radak brings from his father, which is a very, very interesting pshat. The Radak brings from his father a pshat that apoyim means an angry face. That when Elkanah gave the portion to Chana, it hurt him so, the pain of Chana, that he himself had a bitterness when he gave over the portion to her. Not that he didn't want to give over the portion to her in a, in a, in a happy way and in a pleasant way and to make her feel good. But in her, in other words, Elkanah was going through the pain that Eschana Ayev Hashem Sagarachma. And therefore, as, as much as Elkanah would have wanted to, so to speak, here's your portion, so to speak, okay, Elkanah was so bitter with the fact that here was the person that he loved so much, and Hashem Sagarachma, that he couldn't control himself, and his apoyim, his face showed a sadness, it showed a bitterness. This is how the father of the Radak learns, which is a very interesting, which is a very interesting pshat. That in other words, that he felt her tsar and couldn't cover it up as much as it was like almost important to cover it up, not to make Hana feel bad. Now let's go further. The And Pnina used to get Hana angry. Gamkas. And he, she used to get her angry once and twice and a third time and a fourth time. In other words, Pnina, so to speak, said things that accentuated the fact that she didn't have children. And this created a whole new level of bitterness in Chana, anger in Chana. Now the Malbim himself learns, Tsarasa, that there was a bitterness that came because it was Pnina that was showing it up to her. The Gamkas, and she had enough of her own bitterness without Pnina. That's how the Malbim learns. Okay? Ba'avur Harima. So the simple Pshat Ba'avur Harima means because Pnina, okay, was competing for the love of Elkanah. Pnina's way of fighting back for the attention that she knew, that the special attention that Elkanah had given to Chana. So Ba'avur Harima means in order to get her upset. Okay? Now, parenthetically, what is Penina referred to in this Pasuk? She's referred to as a Tsara. Now, the Gemara says, if in one house there are two wives, each one is a Tsara for the other. No, that's like simple Pshat. In other words, the Gemara is telling us that there is a dynamics that, you know, with all of the fancy psychology and whatever else you want to apply, the reality is two wives in one home, each one is a tsara to the other one. Period. There's no changing that. V'chiyasata tsarasa. Finished.
Now, the Gemara, however, says, Ba'avur Harima means so that she should feel so much pain that she would burst out in tears and pray to Hashem. And that Penina did this, quote-unquote, L'Shem Shemayim. In other words, wanted to bring her to a point of such bitterness that she would be led, so to speak, to what? To call out to Hashem in it, with an un- unbelievable depth. Now, we're not going to speak about this today, Mitzvah Next week we'll speak about it in greater detail. The reality is that Penina was punished. And Penina lost all of the child- almost all of the children that she bore to Elkanah until Chana davened that Hashem should have Rachmanus on Penina and shouldn't lose her last, chil- last two children. Okay? But, so Reb Chaim Shmulevitz asks, but Penina did it L'Shem Shemayim according to the Gemara. Okay? She did it L'Shem Shemayim, she did it for the sake of heaven. And Reb Chaim Shmulevitz speaks over there how much a person has to be careful about inflicting pain upon another person even with all of the cheshbonus of L'Shem Shemayim, even with all of the cheshbonus of doing it for, for the highest reasons, quote-unquote, and for ulterior motives, for a person to say that, in other words, for a tzara to say that I'm doing it purely L'Shem Shemayim, it's very dangerous, dangerous business. But we'll talk about that, Mitzvah Shem, we'll talk about that more a little bit later. When we get into Shiraz Chana, we are Chana sings about how HaKadosh Baruch who switched the, the scales and how Chana eventually had children and Penina lost her children will speak about this subject in greater depth right? now and this is what happened every year the Navi says what happened Elkanah used to go up that happened every year and what else happened every year came Tachisena Penina digged into her. Every year was another, another going up to Shilai, another year of pain, another year of hurt. Vatifka, and she cried so much, that she lost her appetite. She couldn't eat from what Elkanah put before her. Vayaymala <clears throat> Elkanah. Elkanah said, now parenthetically, let's stop here just for a moment and return to an earlier Pasuk just for a moment. Let's return to Pasuk. <laughs> Let's return to the third Pasuk. Elkanah used to go up periodically to bow and to what? To bring offerings to Hashem and Shiloh. So the Radak says an interesting thing. The Radak says Lehishtachavos means to daven. Lizbalach means to bring karbanis, to bring offerings. So the Radak brings from the Gemara that we learned from here that Tadavin is equal to bringing offerings or even greater than bringing offerings. Because which one does it say first? It says Lehishtachavos first, and then it says Lizboach. As if to say that the greatest offering that a person can bring is himself. In other words, that the intention of Tefillah, okay, is to bring oneself before Hashem. Now, however, this is a Gemara, the Malbim lends us here a little bit insight. And the Malbim says that Elkanah's tefillah, when Elkanah went up, midei shana b'shana, lehishtachvos 
that Elkanah's tefillah was one tefillah all the time. The tefillah was Fachana. That's what she, that's what his tefillah was. In other words, the Malbim says, why is it that after all, the Pincha, the Chana and Pnina lived under one roof all year long? But it seems that for some reason, the aggravated moments of Tsar that Chana went through reached their peak when they went to Shilai. I mean, supper was served every night, I think so. So what's this business? What's this business that pumped whenever they were in Shilai, that's when there was the pain? Now, I myself have a different answer to this question, which I'm not going to get to today. I have a different, there's a different reason. I, I believe that there's a different answer, but the, according to the Malbim, because going up to Shiloh was, so to speak, in other words, standing the closest that one could before Hashem. And Elkanah used the opportunity of coming, standing in front of Hashem. No, if you're in front of Him, so what do you ask for? The thing that was the most important to Elkanah, for himself and for Hannah, for both of them together, that was that Hannah should have children. Because, her tfil, because his tefillahs revolved around this, Right? So therefore, this became, so to speak, the thing, the, the subject that was on people's minds when they went to Shiloh. Just like when you go to Eretz Yisrael and you go to the Kaisal or you go to Kevarachal or Maris Amachpela, what comes up in a person's mind? The things that they need the deepest. Right? And therefore, when they went up to Shiloh, this is the thing that always rose to the surface. And sure enough, Penina was there to take up this that rose to the surface and to inflict that pain. I'll take questions soon, shortly. So Elkanah said to Chana, Elkanah, the husband said, Chana, Chana, lama sifki, why are you crying? And why have you cried to a point that you can't even bring yourself to eat anymore? And why is your heart so bitter? Don't you know that I love you more than the ten children of Penina? Now, according to one Mephirish, in other words, what is, what is Elkanah saying? Elkanah is saying that don't think for a minute that the ten children of Penina get, have more of my love okay, than you do. Okay? In other words, that the children... In other words, have caught my heart, and that therefore you've lost, you've lost my heart. It's not true. The ten children of Penina, according to other Mefarshim, according to other Mefarshim, the pshat is like this. That the love that I have for you is greater than than the than than any kind of love that you could have imagined that I might have had for you if you would have borne to me ten children. And now you, it sounds remarkably similar, but it's two different ideas. Let me explain the difference in the two mafarshim. According to the first pshat. What, uh, what Elkanah is addressing is that Hannah might think that El- my husband's attention 
is, is distracted and focused on children, not on me. Alright? So according to the first shot, it's not true. My attention is more to you than for, to the ten children of Penina. That's the first pshat. Notice that Hannah's feeling that she's lost the attention of her husband to the children of Penina. And that's what Elkanah is saying. It's not like that. The second pshat is saying is that what you stand for yourself and what you are yourself is more precious to me than if you would have given me ten children. It's a different, uh, uh, it's a different pshat. In other words, it's, it's a statement about what Elkanah sees in Hannah herself. Okay. These are the two pshatim. Now, you would think that what Elkanah has said to Hannah is very sensitive and very considerate. Right? Vatakam Hannah. And Hannah got up. Achrei achla b'shiloi. After she ate something. Her husband was upset that she didn't eat. So even though she couldn't eat, she ate a little bit because she knew that her husband was upset about her being upset. So she ate a little. So she got up after she ate. And the Mepharshim say that she couldn't have even gotten up before she ate because she was so weak from the pain. Va'achrei shasay and after she drank something. Ve'eli hakayin yeshiv alakisi. And Eli hakayin is sitting on the kisei, and from here we learn that he became a Kohen Gadol that day. That means today he sat on the on mezuzah's heichal Hashem, and he was standing by the door going into the Mishkan. Vihimaras nefesh, and she is totally embittered by her situation. Vatispalel al Hashem, and she literally davened on Hashem. Now we'll explain what that means in a minute. Al on, we'll explain in a minute. Ubachai sifke. And as she's davening, she's weeping bitterly. So the Malbim says a phenomenal thing. Malbim says a phenomenal thing here. The Malbim says like this. They used to go up every year. They used to go up every yuntif. This is the first time that the Navi describes that Chana davened. What's going on? As if to say that all of the other times, Elkanah went up, davened, brought his offerings, and it didn't work, and they went home, and so on and so forth. The first time that there's a description that Chana's davening is over here. So the Malbim says it's not a coincidence. Listen to this. Listen to the greatness of the Tzidkani Chana. When Elkanah said to her that you are more valuable to me than ten children, whichever pshat you want to learn, so Chana instead of, so to speak, comforting herself in those words, she understood that on one level, Elkanah gave up on her having children. And she said, all along I relied on the tefillos of my husband, the tzaddik Elkanah. But even though he said this statement that was such a sensitive one, but underneath the words of Elkanah is a giving up that I'll never bring children into the world. So she understood the Malbim said that HaKadosh Baruch Hu brought it to a point that there was no other Eitz that she has to daven for herself. This is what the Malbim says. Now this is not to fault Elkanah. The point of the Malbim is not to fault Elkanah. But to, uh, to give us an understanding 
that it was at the point that Hannah knew that she couldn't rely on anybody else, that she had to throw herself on HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Then she reached the Madrega in Tefillah that ultimately gave her the merit of bringing Shmuel into the world. So long as Hannah was saying, Elkanah will daven for me, eh, the Tefillahs could never reach the place that they needed to reach to bring a Shmuel into the world. You know, the Gemara says an interesting thing. The Gemara says that they, the, the Klal Yisrael knew that somebody was going to be born that was going to be a fantastic Moshe at the Klal Yisrael. You know, everybody did. And when everybody, anybody it was expecting and gave birth to a child, okay, they named the child Shmuel because there was a Masara that there would be this great person whose name was Shmuel in the hope that their child was Shmuel. I mean it. The Gemara says it. The Gemara says it. Okay? And when Chana finally gave birth to Shmuel, it was clear from the very outset before the child was even two years old that this was the Shmuel. But why am I pointing this out? Why I'm pointing this out is obviously, in other words, the world was waiting for a very great person. And it needed that madrag of tefillah when the person reaches the point of knowing that there's no other Eitzah. There is nothing else left to do. There is nowhere else to run. There is nowhere else to go but to throw oneself in entirely on Hashem. It's at that point that the tefillah reaches the place of bringing us at Shmuel, that future Shmuel that has to come into Klal Yisrael. And that's the simple definition that is paleo chana al Hashem. That chana hatzach givafin avdeibishta, she threw herself on Hashem. Before it was relying on this one, relying on that one, that is paleo chana al Hashem. That's what made this tefillah unique and became the medium through which Shmuel HaNavi would be born. This is what the Navi is saying here. Now, there are a lot of things to learn here. All right, we'll start. There are a lot of things to learn here. You know, there's a whole parak in Brachas that many of the halachas of Tefillah are learned from Chana. So you can imagine, don't worry, we're not going to learn a whole parak in Brachas now. Okay, we're not going to do that. But there are a lot of things to learn. So let's see some of the interesting points. <clears throat> now, the first thing that we need to learn is that there are four important components that all came together in the tefillah of Chana. What are the four p- components? Well, let's look in Pasuk Yud. Let's look in the 10th Pasuk first. Vihimaras nefesh. In other words, she has tremendous bitterness and brokenness inside of herself when she's starting to daven Tarkadosh Baruch So the Malbim says, there you've got prerequisite number one. A broken heart is a heart that Tarkadosh Baruch Hu can't help but pay attention to. Shivrein Leiv. Hashem Shemeya, the language of the Malbim is very beautiful here. Hashem Shomeya Tfilas Nijbere Lev. That's number one. Number two, Vatispalel Al Hashem. In other words, a total focus and kavana that the only source and the single source and the only one to talk to 
was HaKadosh Baruch Hu. There is nothing else that exists it, to, in, between me and HaKadosh Baruch Hu except me and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Total Kavana. Number two. Number three, Ubachai Sifka. She was in such pain that she wept bitterly. So the Malbim says, Zeu Masha Amru Chazal Afopishe Share Tfila Ninalu that even if all of the gates of heaven are closed, but the gates of tears are never closed. Tfilos that come on the wings of tears are tfilos that penetrate all gates. That's three things. And in the next pasik, Vatidar Neder, and she realized that she was in crisis, and she made a promise to Hashem. That's a fourth element. That when a person davens and knows that they're in desperate need, besides the broken heart and besides the kavana, the total concentration, and besides the ability to, to, to cry before Hashem, but to make a promise to Hashem. Nodrim-based Sarah, Vatomer, and she said, Hashem Tzavakos, Hashem the master of all constellations, Imra'o Sireh, if you will see and certainly see Ba'ani Amasecha, the oppression of your, your maidservant. Uzchatani, and you will remember me. Velosishkach, and you won't ever forget me again. Esamasecha, your maidservant. And you will give your maidservant a worthy person. Bring a worthy person into this world. I don't want a child for myself that child will be given to you. Kol of all of his life, he will only use his life for one thing in dedication to you. Umorelo yala al rosho. What this means, I'm not going to explain right now. Let's go back to the beginning of the Pasuk and let's pick up some important things first at the beginning of the Pasuk. She made a nether. She made a promise to Hashem. And she said, Hashem, the master of all constellations, if you will see the oppression that I am going through. Now, let's first, let's understand something. Yes, no dream based tsara, that's what we said. The based tsara, you make a nether. No dream based tsara. Okay, in a time of crisis, a person is supposed to make a nether. As Yaakov made a nether based tsara, as Kali Yisrael many times, unfortunately, had to make nedarim based tsara. Now, what did she say? Hashem, the master of all constellations. This is the first time in Tefillah that the word Tzvakos, referring to the master of all realms, that's a description of Hashem. It's one of Hashem's names, but it's the first time that it's mentioned. Why? So we hear here, we learn here a very interesting thing that the Gemara says, which I'd like to explain. The Gemara says like this, Chana stood before HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and she said the following thing. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you basically created in your world the higher realms and the lower realms. In the, all of the higher realms, things exist. They don't procreate, but they don't die. And they have an eternity of service to you in the fact that they are eternal. In this world... People exist and they die. But at least they're able to leave children over after they die. 
So Hannah turned to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and said, which realm do I belong to? Do I belong to the realm of that which is above? So make me eternal. Do I belong to the realm down here? Help me bring children into the world. Now, what is Hannah saying? What is this supposed to mean? She's trying to be smart with Hashem, like, where do I belong? I don't fit in anywhere. Like, what is she saying exactly? Now, let's go a little bit further. The Gemara says on the words, Imra'otira, if you will see, if you will certainly see the oppression of your maidservant. You know what the Gemara says on those two words, Ra'otira, the double language, if you will see, you will see? That Chana turned to HaKadosh Baruch and said, if you see my plight and give me children, fine. And if you don't give me children, I'll show you. I'll hide with a man. And I'll get Elkanah upset. And I won't do anything, but I'll be brought as a sota into the, into the Mishkan. And they'll have to give me the water, and then you'll have to give me children. Roy Sirah. If you'll see, fine. And if you won't see, the Gemara says, what's going on? What is Chana saying? The Gemara says, that she threw it into HaKadosh Baruch Hu's face. What is it supposed to mean? So the Pshat's like this. And this comes back to an old question, an older question from earlier on in the class. What Chana was saying was as follows. What Chana was saying is that everything in this creation is born to bring Kavod Shemayim into the world, to bring the honor of Hashem into the world. The higher realms do it by their eternity of service. The lower realms also do it because while they're alive they serve and they raise a generation that after them also serves. So Hannah says, where is my eternal gift of bringing Kavod Shemayim into the world? The, the realms above have covered Shemayim eternally. The realms below have covered Shemayim, bring covered Shemayim, the honor of Hashem into the world eternally. They don't live forever, but they leave a, gen- leave a generation over that does. So that's also eternal covered Shemayim. I want a part in covered Shemayim. That's what she was saying. And therefore, when she said, Ra'i Sirah, if you'll see, you'll see, and if you won't see, you won't see. In other words, her desperation wasn't chutzpah. Her desperation was that she was standing before HaKadosh Baruch Hu and saying that I want only one thing, I want Kavit Shemayim. And one way or the other, I don't want to leave this world and leave a vacuum of Kavit Shemayim. And that's what she meant when she said, Ra'i Sirah. The proof is in the pudding. Because she said to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, almost as if to excuse her onslaught on HaKadosh Baruch Hu, if you will give me a child, he will be given away to your service kol yemei chayav, his whole life. Ich I'm not looking for myself, I'm looking, I'm looking for, for your service. That's how she presented herself. This is the reason in my view, lefi amniastati, in my humble view, why this became an issue when they went to Shilai. 
Why did why was this such an aggravated problem only when they went to Shilai? You know why? Because when Hannah walked into Shilai, she saw the concept of Kavit Shemayim. She saw the ma- majesty of what Kavit Shemayim was. And the thought that she would leave the world and she wouldn't leave something over that would continue the work of the majesty of Kavit Shemayim was an unbearable thought for her. That's, and when it says, Vatisfalel al Hashem, she davened for her Kavishvachu. Vatisfalel al Hashem doesn't simply mean Vatisfalel al Hashem that she threw herself on Hashem. That's a good pshat. But Vatisfalel al Hashem means that she davened for her Kavishvachu, al Hashem, for Hashem. That's what the Navi is saying. Right, we'll stop here and we'll continue with Hashem next week.